Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we're diving into The Republic, a seminal work written around 380 BCE by Plato, the famous student of Socrates. This dialogue-driven text offers profound insights into the concepts of justice, the ideal citizen, and the ideal form of government. The Republic does more than merely discuss politics. It explores the intricate relationship between the citizen and the city, examining the impact this relationship has on a broad array of topics, including philosophy, politics, ethics, and art. Plato, whose contribution to the classical period of Greek philosophy remains unparalleled, was not just a philosopher, but also a mathematician. He penned over 30 dialogues and philosophical texts, exploring a diverse range of subjects, from love to knowledge, and from ethics to politics, metaphysics, and theology. This book is a must-read, not just for those interested in history, classical philosophy, or politics, but for anyone seeking to understand the foundations of Western thought. Let's explore the insightful world of the Republic and discover how it continues to shape our understanding of justice and governance today. The Republic, one of the most important philosophical texts ever written. Introduction. Delve into the depths of philosophical discourse with an exploration of justice in Plato's Republic. What defines a just individual or a just society? This question is at the heart of the discourse led by Socrates in the Republic. Although crafted over 2,000 years ago by the timeless philosopher Plato, The Republic continues to be a cornerstone of philosophical and political thought, even today. Indeed, the prominent scholar Sir Alfred North Whitehead once described the entire field of philosophy as a mere footnote to Plato. Regarded as an essential part of Western intellectual heritage, the Republic takes you on a journey through Socrates' intellectual expedition as he probes various individuals about the roles that justice, philosophy, and art play in shaping society and the individual soul. Embarking on this exploration, you'll discover how the illusion of justice can often mask the worst forms of injustice, the concept of the noble lie and its binding power within a community, and how the composition of the soul can be likened to that of a speech. Part 1. Grapple with Socrates, as he critiques various proposed definitions of justice. Imagine trying to define justice in a conversation with Socrates. No matter how robust your definition seems, Socrates would likely find a way to disassemble it. This holds true in the dialogues that unfold in the Republic, as he critically scrutinizes several proposed interpretations of justice. The first suggested definition is presented by Polemarchus, who states that justice involves providing each person with what they are due. But Socrates unravels this idea by proposing exceptions. For instance, consider a scenario where weapons are owed. While one should typically return what they owe, it wouldn't be prudent to return weapons to a person displaying threatening and unstable behavior. The concept of justice as giving what is owed, therefore, doesn't consistently apply. Polemarchus then proposes an alternate definition. Justice implies assisting friends and harming enemies. 
Socrates challenges this definition by questioning whether there exist situations where inflicting harm is ethically acceptable. He concludes that it is not. Just as animal trainers don't benefit the animals they harm, people don't become better through suffering harm. Also, it's possible to mistakenly perceive friends as enemies, and vice versa, leading one to unintentionally benefit those they intended to harm. Given that inflicting harm isn't beneficial and our judgments can be flawed, this second definition doesn't hold up either. The third definition comes from Thrasymachus, who suggests that justice is what serves the ruler's interest. Socrates counters this by asking whether the same principle would apply to other roles like that of a physician. A doctor's primary concern should be the patient's health, not the doctor's personal gain. Similarly, a ruler who prioritizes personal gain over the well-being of his citizens cannot be considered just. Like the doctor, a just ruler should aim to benefit his patient, in this case, the city. Having found this third definition insufficient, the initial efforts to define justice hit a standstill, culminating in an aporia, a point of philosophical impasse in the dialogue. Part 2. The notion of justice must be examined within the interplay of individual and society. Emerging from the stalemate of various flawed definitions, Socrates offers his own interpretation of justice, adhering to one's own role. This idea of justice, Socrates asserts, has both personal and societal facets. To adhere to one's own role is to shoulder our appropriate responsibilities, which benefits both the individual and the society. In a just and well-structured city, every citizen has a specific role tailored to their capabilities. This way, the burden of managing all societal functions doesn't fall on a single person. Socrates outlines that a city should be composed of craftsmen, doctors, merchants, rulers, and soldiers. It's essential that each person recognizes their individual role and then fulfills it competently. Achieving this requires just institutions within the city to educate the citizens about their specific duties. Having understood their responsibilities, individuals can then focus on their roles and execute them justly and aptly. This pattern of conduct reverberates throughout the city, ultimately shaping its character as just or unjust. But Socrates adds a caveat. Not everyone is suited for every role. For example, an excellent general may not necessarily make a capable horse trainer. The objective of each person's job must extend beyond personal gain and contribute to the collective welfare. This is the social role it serves. Consider the role of a ruler. A just ruler governs for the benefit of the city, while a tyrant governs for personal advantage. Therefore, a tyrant's actions mirror the corruption within his society, whereas a just ruler's actions reflect the justice prevailing in his city. From this perspective, the justice of an individual cannot be considered in isolation from the justice of the city. Recognizing one's role is not a solitary endeavor. Rather, it is shaped by the needs of society and the individual's aptitudes. In a well-balanced, just society, the needs of the city and the needs of its people exist in a symbiotic relationship, with each benefiting from the other. Part 3. The pursuit of justice requires authenticity, not mere pretense. 
An underlying theme resonating through the philosophical exchanges in the Republic is the contrast between essence and appearance, the discrepancy between how something seems and what it truly is. The gravest form of injustice, the dialogue suggests, is when someone projects an image of justice while harboring injustice within. Now, Plato's brother, Glaucon, steps into the conversation. Glaucon and Socrates venture into a deeper exploration of justice, advocating that a life lived justly is inherently more valuable than a life immersed in injustice. To stimulate this exploration, Glaucon, acting as the devil's advocate, posits a theory he invites Socrates to refute. He proposes that the majority of people believe it's more beneficial to merely maintain an outward semblance of justice than to actually embody it. Socrates, however, not only rebuffs this idea, but emphasizes that living such a life represents the pinnacle of injustice. He compares this to someone who falsely portrays themselves as a proficient weapon maker while lacking the requisite skills. Such dishonest claims could result in the creation of seemingly sturdy shields that crumble in the heat of battle. The underlying message here is that outward appearances bear no relation to one's true character. The real test of a person's mettle lies in their actions under pressure. Socrates goes on to claim that one can gauge a person's justice or injustice by examining their surroundings, their city, and their interactions with others. Hence, for an individual to be truly just, their city must also embody justice, not just put up an appearance of it. Furthermore, Socrates argues that just individuals cannot thrive in the absence of a just city. Therefore, those living in cities where laws serve the interests of a privileged few, rather than the collective welfare, inhabit unjust cities, regardless of how just they might seem. Such cities are often governed by tyrants, whose unjust actions mask an unearned image of justice. Laws established by tyrants invariably favor themselves and penalize anyone opposing them. Instead of aspiring towards a collective good, these tyrants pursue only their self-centered ambitions. Part 4. Nurturing justice requires a balanced education and a noble fiction. Socrates envisions education as the driving force molding individuals into just beings. Thus, an effective education is one that shapes individuals capable of sustaining and fortifying the city with their robust mind and body. To illustrate, Socrates presents musical education as the foundation of a healthy mind, while gymnastics fosters a healthy body. Music plays a pivotal role in nurturing the mind and soul through its elements of rhythm and harmony. These elements instill a sense of balanced mental order, ultimately guiding individuals towards just character traits. This balanced mental order is also indispensable for a range of arts and crafts. Gymnastics, on the other hand, cultivates physical robustness and fosters communal cooperation. Take, for instance, the Olympic sports, which simultaneously hone individual strength and foster a group mindset. Individuals enhance their strength through activities like running or javelin throwing. Team dynamics are strengthened through wrestling and group combat training, which necessitates cooperation among individuals, thereby fostering a communal spirit.
The twin virtues of music and gymnastics produce citizens equipped with a healthy mind and body, hence contributing to the overall cultural and military strength of the city. While a balanced mind and body are indeed valuable to the individual, another element is crucial to foster justice and engender a sense of belonging in the individual towards her city, a noble fiction that weaves individuals into the fabric of their city and community. This noble fiction instills in citizens the belief that the earth is their nurturing mother and that they have all sprung from beneath their city. Just as the foundation of the city rests on earth, so too do its citizens, birthed from the very ground they tread. Socrates proposes that this noble fiction, or a similar myth, must be imparted to the citizens by their custodians, fostering a sense of deep connection with their city. This noble fiction, thus ensures that citizens will rally to defend the city during times of strife and work towards its betterment during times of peace. Part 5. The quest for justice requires an examination of both the city and the individual, drawing parallels between a just city and the soul of a just person. Examining an individual devoid of the context of their city is an exercise in futility, asserts Socrates. The intricate dynamic between a city and its citizens is a two-way process. The city molds its citizens, who in turn shape and evolve the city. The synergy between a just person and a just city is crucial. A city influences its citizens through its laws and institutions. As these citizens grow and assume diverse roles, they possess the capacity to modify existing laws or introduce new ones, facilitating the city's evolution in tandem with their own. This reciprocal relation thus debunks the possibility of finding a just person in an unjust society, or vice versa. To elucidate his theory, Socrates employs an analogy between the city and the human soul. When Glaucon urges Socrates to probe the soul of a just person, Socrates likens the soul to a discourse. It embodies reason and logic. The soul of a person unravels through engaging in conversation with them and understanding their rationalizations for their actions. Just as a just person embodies a balanced soul, a just city represents the same harmony, only amplified. Therefore, the city's foundations, its speeches, dialogues, and laws, warrant an in-depth discussion. Conversation reveals the individual's thought process. Similarly, Discussing a city illuminates its inner workings. If the city embodies justice, it will spawn just individuals capable of justifying their actions and engaging in debates regarding the essence of their justice. Thus, comprehending a just person necessitates not only a dialogue with them, but also an analysis of the just city reflected in the enlightening exchanges between Socrates and his interlocutors. Part 6 the city and soul mirror each other, each compartmentalized into three distinct segments, and each segment of the city echoes a corresponding aspect of the individual's soul. Pondering upon the ideal structure and organization of a just city, Socrates invokes the noble lie as an illustration, aligning the city's partition with the tripartite division of the human soul, the first segment of both the soul and city operates on the principle of reason. The gold souls, as postulated by the noble lie, correspond to the city's rulers or guardians, 
who are adept at crafting laws and exercising rule, mirroring the ruler's oversight over the city, the rational part of the soul, driven by reason and logic, is entrusted with presiding over other parts of the soul, thereby preserving order and hence justice. This rational part is also tasked with strategizing tasks and charting out the ways to accomplish them. The city's second segment, the army, mirrors the soul's spirited part which teems with passion and zest. Those with silver souls constitute the army, defending the city during conflicts and upholding its laws during peaceful times. Analogously, the spirited silver part of the soul functions as a mediator in case of disagreements between the soul's rational and desirous parts. This spirited part maintains an equilibrium between rigorous reasoning and impulsive decisions. The city's base segment, comprising farmers and craft workers, corresponds with the soul's most basic part, the bronze part, governed by desires. Individuals with bronze souls, farmers, craftsmen, and producers of goods, are propelled by fundamental desires and needs that demand immediate fulfillment, such as sexual cravings. This part also signals our basic needs, such as hunger, sleep, or the urge to procreate. Although the city's rulers, soldiers, farmers, and craft workers represent the gold, silver, and bronze parts of the soul, respectively, their individual souls also encompass these three parts. Hence, even the farmers and craft workers have rational and spirited aspects within their souls, just as the rulers harbor a desirous part within theirs. Part 7. Philosophers must assume the mantle of rulers or kings must espouse philosophy in order to foster a truly just city. Who would be your ideal choice of a ruler? Socrates asserts that philosophers should don the crown, being the only path to ensure rational governance and the establishment of just laws. For the philosopher king, the realms of philosophy and sovereignty must be intertwined. If a philosopher is to ascend the throne or if a king is to delve into philosophy, they must allow reason to guide their soul and preside over the city with a rational approach. The philosopher king, in his quest for wisdom, upholds a balanced and harmonious soul. Such a ruler refuses to succumb to impulsive passions. When the soul achieves equilibrium, one's life mirrors the same balance. Philosopher kings, thus, embody sound physical and mental health, exemplifying the values inculcated through their education. The philosopher king's insatiable appetite for knowledge resonates within the community, guiding them in deciding the city's governance and its citizens' education. They should steer the educational policies, identifying the roles best suited to each individual and defining the learning curricula. These philosopher kings also shoulder the responsibility of formulating the city's laws, each law mirroring the facets of justice and the collective good. Let's not forget, just laws are not crafted solely for the ruler's benefit. Instead, they serve all citizens. Lastly, the determination of the common good falls within the realm of the philosopher kings. This represents the shared prosperity of individuals and the city, ensuring that neither the city flourishes at the expense of its citizens, nor do the citizens prosper at the cost of the city. Part 8 Philosophers encounter significant obstacles in governing and educating others. Rationality may not always attract popularity, 
In fact, often rational arguments find themselves clashing headlong with entrenched habits and prejudices. Persuading someone to adopt regular exercise, for instance, can pose a significant challenge. Likewise, rational philosophers may encounter irrational resistance while attempting to shape a city. To elucidate this point, Socrates narrates the allegory of the cave. He likens the philosopher's endeavor to enlighten those around them to the act of pulling people out from a cave. Socrates invites Glaucon to envision a cave. Within its depths, prisoners are shackled to chairs, their line of sight fixated on the cave wall, their reality confined to this setting since birth. The movements of people passing in front of the cave cast shadows on the wall due to the sunlight at their backs. The prisoners, knowing nothing outside this existence, mistake the shadows and echoing voices as their reality, failing to grasp their illusory nature. Philosophers are those who venture into this cave with the aim of freeing these prisoners and leading them into the light. According to Socrates, most people resemble these cave dwellers, mistaking shadows for reality. In this quest, the philosopher strives to uncover the true essence lurking behind these shadows, behind these deceptive appearances. In Socrates' cave allegory, sunlight symbolizes the good. It might be too glaring to stare directly at, but it illuminates the truth. Socrates underscores that, while everyone is born within the confines of this metaphorical cave, it's the philosophers who possess the ability to escape its dark recesses and then return to liberate others. Part 9. Socrates outlines five distinct types of governance, championing aristocracy as the premier form. While the majority of us dwelling in the West may be acquainted only with democracy, have you ever wondered about other governance models? Which one holds superiority over others? Socrates proceeds to reveal his observations. According to Socrates, a city's political life follows a cyclic pattern, transitioning from the finest form of governance to the worst, only to circle back to the finest. These five government types, arranged from the most favorable to the least, include aristocracy, democracy, oligarchy, democracy, and tyranny. The governed rallying against their rulers triggers these unavoidable transitions. Socrates proclaims aristocracy, or the rule of the best, as the premier form of governance. In this system, the philosopher king emerges as the perfect ruler. The subsequent optimal form of governance is democracy, a system predicated upon honor. Those who lack advanced reasoning skills govern under this system as they cannot sustain an aristocracy. Such rulers woo the public with impassioned rhetoric about honor, contrasting the rational discourse of philosophers. When a timocratic ruler overthrows a philosopher king, the aristocracy falls concurrently. The third rank is held by oligarchy, where the city is governed by money. Individuals with silver and bronze souls are pitted against each other in a struggle to seize city rule and command money. In an oligarchy, affluence purchases political power. Democracy, offering mixed freedom, takes the fourth place. This form arises when the economically disadvantaged populace revolts against the financial inequality inherent in an oligarchy. Democracies promise unrestricted freedom, including freedom of speech to all citizens. Under democracy, 
everyone enjoys the liberty to pursue their desires, a scenario Socrates likens to a multicolored cloak lacking harmony and order among its colors. Last on the list is tyranny, depicted as the worst form of governance. The unrestrained freedom provided by democracy offers a platform for the tyrant to seize power, ruling for their personal gain rather than for collective welfare. Final summary. The fundamental takeaway from this book, through Plato's dialogue, Socrates delves into the essence of justice and the ideal form of governance. He scrutinizes the structures necessary to guide individuals towards the pursuit of justice, advocating for a city that embodies justice and offers prosperity to its inhabitants, as well as citizens who uphold justice to the benefit of their city. Socrates aims to showcase that justice triumphs over injustice. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then. Happy reading and happy listening.